0: that's kind of a dramatic introduction, isn't it? I love that. Well, welcome again. Glad to see everybody. Uh, We are in the midst of a series called Story, and today we're going to be talking about reconciliation. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 6 through 11. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Down the middle aisle are uh, stacks of Bibles underneath your seat if you'd like to follow along with us as we Search the scriptures today. Uh, Romans chapter 5 is on page 612 in the Pew Bible, so to speak. We're going to read these words out loud uh, as you read them uh, in the pages of your Bibles, or if you want to cheat and go ahead and look on the screen, you're welcome to do that. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11 will be our text today. And uh, looks like everybody's found it, so we'll go ahead and get started. Here we go. much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for the day. Thank you for the opportunity to gather as your church. And uh, Lord, I thank you for uh, your word, and I pray, God, that you would um, that we would see uh, Jesus in the pages of Scripture today and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would uh, illumine this passage to us, help us see something that we have yet to see before. But more importantly, Lord God, we pray that you would um, that you would show us the, the greatness of the God that we serve that would reconcile us to God the Father by his death on the cross. Lord, we pray for all those churches who are meeting right now just like us and uh, the fellowships that they enjoy. Pray that you would uh, bless them with your presence. God, we pray that your uh word would go forth today that your gospel will be preached and people would be changed under the hearing of your word. God, we pray in the midst of our own service, God, that you would save those who have yet to uh, confess Jesus as Lord. God, I pray that you would um, exalt Jesus in our midst and that we would be changed in the presence and in the hearing of your word. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Everyone said amen and amen. So we're in a series called Story where we're tracing the plot line. Of the Bible, and that plot line starts with creation, then it goes to the fall, and then we see reconciliation of all those things um, that transpired after the fall, and then the consummation of all things. And today we're going to look at the story of reconciliation. If you grew up around people, you are no stranger to reconciliation. If you have a sibling, if you're married, perhaps um, you know you work around people in any. Any part of life, unless you are a hermit, stuck in a tree, um, devoid of people whatsoever, then you have had an opportunity to be confronted with the idea of reconciliation um, up front. Uh, My brother, Greg, is two years older than me, and he's my hero. He has always been my hero. When we were young, living in our parents' home, we shared the same room. he was, uh, I mean, I looked up to him in every area of life. Academically, he was astute. He was um, socially, you know, just had lots of friends. He played sports. I wanted to be like my brother. His friends were my friends. I wanted to do everything that he did. It was a summer, and uh, we were just hanging out. Um, his friends had come over to our house, and we were playing. And uh in this one particular instance, my brother decided that, He didn't want me tagging along that particular day with what he and his friends were going to do. And I mean, I was a little put off by that. I mean, because I idolized my brother and I really I mean, his friends were my friends. I didn't do anything outside of my brother, Um, but he was set on going and and having a fun day without me with his friends. And um, I mean, I was so put off by that that I decided to go in the kitchen. I went into the the drawer where all the, you know, the silverware, that that special drawer to my mother's um, special knives. Um, And I pulled out a knife and I chased my brother out of the house and down the street. Um, That was me reconciling this idea of, of him not wanting me to to go and hang out with him that day. I don't remember how it ended. Um, but I do remember having a knife in my hand, chasing my brother down the street. My brother's alive today. I'm I'm not in jail. So somehow we reconciled that, um, you know, to be reconciled means to re- uh, the restoration of friendly relations. My brother and I have a good relationship now. So although I can't remember it, something happened to put that hostility that was in my soul for him on that particular day back together to be reconciled to someone implies that a hostile relationship um exist and something has to be done to restore the peace, to get rid of that hostility. The Bible tells us uh, very bluntly and without holding back that sinners are, um, are hostile to God. Sinners are enemies of God. We read that in verse 10. Romans 5 uh, verse 10 says, for if while we were enemies, the suggestion there is that we are enemies because of our rebellion against God, starting from Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter three. And we could talk a lot about this idea of enemies and God and what that means uh, for for God, who is supposed to be a God of love, but also what that means for us as people who uh, selectively rebel against him. Um, But I'm going to just shave off all the time that we could spend on that to To make this point, we should not minimize this idea of of us being enemies of God. These words are serious words and they have serious connotations. Think about those of you. It's Veterans Weekend. So those of you who are have served time in the military, think about what you think about when you have an enemy. An enemy is opposed to you. An enemy is in the other camp. An enemy has his his weapons of war trained on you um likely spying on you doing everything that he can to find intelligence about you so that when the right time comes he can use those weapons of war to take you out so this really is what um the, this is the this is what the bible is conveying to us when it says that we are enemies of god we have selectively by nature and by choice made ourselves enemies of the god of the bible the new testament picture is that God vigorously opposes anything that is evil. And that's a harsh word to use, that word evil. But it rightly describes the fundamental problem of our world, of all of creation, of of human beings since the fall of Adam and and Eve in the Garden of of Eden. Excuse me with my words here. Um, And that problem is sin. It's that problem is guilt. The problem is um, all the things that result from that rebellion that Adam and Eve uh, brought about in the Garden of Eden and the wrath of God that that sin incurs. And so reconciliation and ideas surrounding it describes all the things that have to happen to restore our relationship with God. You know, as we think about God's story in the Bible, we know that, I mean, this is not the way it was supposed to be. God created the world uh Perfect. OK. At the end of six literal days of creation, he said at the end that this day was good and this day was good. And what he made here was was good. And the end of, of, of six days got rested on the seventh day. He said everything was good. Everything was in harmony with God and and with itself. Humanity was the pinnacle of God's great creation. And God gave human beings, the uh, opportunity to have dominion over the the great earth that he had created over the animals and to really be his vice regents in charge of all that he had made. We only need to get two pages into the Bible, two chapters in for all of that to be undone. Adam and Eve uh, do what God says not to do. They sin and the result of their fall, their fall from good to bad, their fall from righteous to unrighteous. Their fall from being all that God meant for them to be in that perfect setting to being totally unlike the the, the persons that they had that God had made them to be uh, results, and it's pervasive, and it goes and it uh, changes their own hearts, but it it changes really the 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 surface of everything that exists on planet Earth. Man literally falls from all that God intended. Him for them to be. And God judges the guilty. He pronounces curses on man, on the serpent, on the land that we uh, now live on. He kicks Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. They die spiritually. We know eventually they die physically. The reason why we die now is because of the curse put on Adam and Eve in the garden. And as we fast forward in just this, the one chapter, one, just a few chapters in Genesis, we read these verses in Genesis uh, chapter six, verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And from here, it only gets worse. It only gets worse. At this point, God's perfect creation is nothing like the dream world that he created it to be. And this is where the story of the Bible could have ended. God could have just smited the, the whole earth. OK, his intention was in Genesis six that he didn't like what he saw. He was going to really he reversed everything that, that he had done in the curse. There's absolutely no reason why God should have done anything to 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 help, to save, to to keep this earth and these people that he had put on the earth that rebelled against him. But he does. Immediately after Adam and Eve's sin, we see glimpses of God's grace. He pursued Adam and Eve. He spoke to them. Adam, where are you? He clothed them, sacrificing an animal, taking the fig leaves that they had made, they had cut off of trees to cover themselves and he actually sacrificed an animal and gave them loincloths in the midst of judging Adam and Eve in Genesis three fifteen, we see God pronouncing the first gospel he promises redemption through the seed of the woman and this is prophetically pointing to the future death of Jesus on the cross which will defeat Satan and offer reconciliation between God and man, and through the rest of the Old Testament, God continues to extend his grace to mankind and all of his once good creation. We don't have time to go step by step through all the, the books of the Bible to look at really the story unfolding that would show us really why reconciliation is necessary. But what I would like to do is take a few minutes and and pull out four things, four things that we see in the Old Testament. Have you, have you ever wondered? I mean, look at this book. It's a very thick book. Seventy five percent of it is the Old Testament. Okay, so why do we need all those words if they weren't important? And um, we don't have time to do it it justice, but I'm going to to give you four things that I think help serve the foundation for the reconciliation that we have today. The first of those things is this idea of covenants, a covenant. You are entering covenants all the time. Um, Your marriage, if you're married, is a covenant. Um uh, Any uh, binding agreement that you have with another person for uh, a job to be done over an extended period of time, um, contracts that you enter uh, that the house that you live in the, the mortgage that you uh, enter in for your house is a form of covenant any legal transaction in the Bible God enters into covenants with human beings, binding himself and making promises. to to us that he will do certain things in turn for our obedience. And typically, most of these covenants are sealed in blood. God has uh, the object of the covenant build an altar, take a perfect animal and sacrifice that animal on that altar, um, signifying that that covenant is now ratified. And then he gives uh, designs a sign for not only himself, but for us to remember. So this idea of covenants, there's there's four covenants throughout the Old Testament that help us see what God is doing that leads up to the story of reconciliation. Uh, God has a, co- a, a covenant with Noah. Genesis six, we read these words that God is about to. I mean, he really wants to destroy the earth. And so with Noah, God covenants to preserve his creation and never to destroy it again by water, and the, the sign of that covenant are the rainbows that we still see in the sky after it rains. Fast forward in time, and God brings forth a man named Abraham, and God says to Abraham that he's going to promise to make him a great nation, and that through him and his lineage, all nations would be blessed. And the sign of that covenant with Abraham was the sign of circumcision. Fast forward a little bit more and God raises up a guy named Moses and Moses um, is a Hebrew. He's brought up in, in dignity in the house of Pharaoh and God uses him to deliver the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And through Moses, God promises to make the Israelites his special people. If only they'll obey, obey the commands that he gives them in the law. And the sign of the covenant with Moses is the sign of the Sabbath. Actually, we can say that the sign with Moses is the Ten Commandments, the law that he gives them at Mount Sinai. But uh, one of those Ten Commandments is this idea of keeping the Sabbath, of operating from a, a perspective of being in God's rest. And then the last covenant that I think is is pertinent for this uh, for us in terms of unfolding this idea of reconciliation is the New Covenant. Fast forward um, through. Uh, Israel going into the promised land, God giving them kings to uh, to rule them and them not being able to simply keep God's laws. And God God judges them. God has obligated them to to obey him and they fail to do that. And so he simply judges them. He splits Israel into two kingdoms, a northern and a southern kingdom. He sends them into exile. So they are in slavery, um, subject to other nations. But God promises through Jeremiah that he'll build a better covenant. It's a covenant that won't be written in stone. It's a covenant that will be written on their hearts and everyone will know God because he'll put their spirit, his spirit in them and they'll know God and they'll be given complete forgiveness. And Jesus' death on the cross is what inaugurates this covenant once we cross over into the New Testament. And the sign of this covenant is baptism. When you are baptized today, you are entering into this same covenant, this new covenant, uh, this new covenant, um, expression of relationship with God. When we take communion at the end of our services, we, t- we mention the wine that's given that, um, Jesus forgives us of our sin. That cup represents Jesus' And, uh, entering into a new covenant with us. These are the signs that God gives us. The first of the four things is covenants. The second is God's law. After delivering the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt through Moses, God gives the law on Mount Sinai. We know these as the Ten Commandments. Actually, there are other laws. There's laws governing how Israel are to govern themselves. There's laws given, uh, governing how the, the priests are to um, conduct sacrifices. There's laws Uh, uh, governing how they're to socially uh, act uh, one to another. These and other uh, commands God promises to bless his people, in turn, if they'll obey him. There's several things that we could say about the the God's laws in the Old Testament. But three things are are pertinent for us here. First is, you know, the, the law was not meant to save God's people. It was meant to remind them constantly that they could not all they could not do the things that God Told them to do. It was, the law was set in place to remind them of their sin. More importantly, the law was there to let them know God's standard. All right. The third theme is God's presence. God instructs Moses to con- conduct, uh, to construct a tabernacle, a tent in the middle of the desert. Okay. This, uh, fast forward to the time of Solomon, uh, this tent becomes a grand temple that houses God's presence. And as you can see by the, Little diagram there. There's an outer court and there's an inner court. The outer court had is where the priests would receive God's people as they brought sacrifices and as they congregated with them, with each other. And the inner court had uh, furniture of sorts that aided the priests in worshiping God. There was the the table of of presents, twelve loaves of bread that represented God's provision, God taking care of all their needs. There was a golden lampstand which symbolized God's constant watch over the people to keep them safe from harm. There was the altar of incense, which reminded them that God was always near. And then there was a curtain dividing the, the most holy place from uh, from the, the holy place, the holy of holies. And inside of this holy of holies was one piece of furniture. There was an ark of the covenant representing God's presence being amongst the people. Beautiful. Chest, kind of a structure, covered, layered in gold. On top of it, uh, cherubim with their arms stretched out. On top of that, uh, underneath that, rather, you had an atonement seat, a mercy seat that, um, that w- they would sprinkle blood. Um, to, to As they offered sacrifices, they would sprinkle blood on this to signify the purification of sins. The significance of this tabernacle is that while God once kicked Adam and Eve out of, out of the Garden of Eden, This tabernacle out in the desert and in this this grand temple that that Solomon built um, allowed God to be amongst his people. The last thing would be this sacrifices. You know, we ask this question oftentimes. Why does God require um, the constant sacrifice of animals in the Old Testament? I would tell you um, there's an answer to that question. But the more appropriate question is how can a holy God live amongst a sinful people? Without destroying them, and that therein is the the answer to the question of why God allows and requires sacrifices. From the very start, the Israelites could not keep the laws that God had given them. Sin in the Bible deserves punishment. If you look at Genesis two seventeen, God tells Adam and Eve, "Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because in the day that you eat it, you're going to die." Fast forward to the the, uh, the New Testament, Paul says that the wages of our sin is death. And so anytime we sin, a holy God requires punishment, and that punishment is death. And so a sacrifice represents death happening to appease the wrath of God. The sacrificial system was designed to deal with the problem of sin in the camp, so to speak. God commanded that sacrifices be offered every day in the tabernacle for the sins of the people, when we look at the book of Leviticus, chapters 16 and 17, we see that there was a special day, the Day of Atonement, where God would have the priest bring two goats, two perfect goats. Uh, one would be slaughtered. His blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat of God. The other would um, basically have the priest lay his hands on top of that goat. He would be taken out of the camp and set free. The one, the, the one goat whose blood was slaughtered, was basically dying in place of the people who had sinned. The other goat was allowed to go free, symbolizing that God's mercy had been given to, to one goat, whereas the sacrifice, uh, his, his wrath was taken out on the goat that was slaughtered. Leviticus 17:11 says this, "For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life." You know, people can live because the animal has died. That really is the pattern that the the Old Testament is, is pulling out for us in this idea of sacrifices. The result of a sacrifice is atonement. Reconciliation for the wrath of God has happened because something has died. The life that's in the blood has been spilt. A life has been taken to appease the wrath of God, allowing the people to go free. Now, the, the thing that we see in the Old Testament is these sacrifices happen day in and day out, day in and day out, because the sacrifice of an animal could never completely take away the sin of the people. And therein we see the need for Jesus. And that brings us to our passage here today. Um, the, the simple message of Romans chapter five or six and eleven is that scripture is that um, reconciliation with God comes from the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And not just a simple death, the brutal, bloody, sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Much like the sacrifices that we see in the Old Testament. Jesus is going to serve as a sacrifice on the cross in our place for our sin. He bears in his body the wrath of God that we might go free and receive God's mercy. That's what's happening. So let's read verse six through eight together again. You don't have to read it. I'm going to read it out loud. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for, the, for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one won't even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The first thing that I think you should notice here is the increasingly uh, severe language that that um, that Paul uses to describe our nature. Our nature post fall of Adam and Eve in verse six, he uses he uses the word weak and ungodly in verse eight. He uses the word sinners in verse 10, which we haven't read yet. He uses this word enemies. You know, the word weak is is misleading. Sometimes we think of a weak person as someone who has no strength. Actually, what this is saying is it's a person who's helpless a person who has no ability to pull themselves out of the the condition that they are in. And so Paul's Paul's picture here is that we are sinners. We're ungodly. We are evil. We're enemies of God and we have no means at all to pull ourselves out of the condition that we find ourselves. We need help. We are helpless. Not only that. He says, we're morally weak. We're incapable of doing good. Now, this incapable of doing good it's not a, a horizontal good. We, you know, there's common grace of God that gives us the ability to be nice to our friends and to our loved ones. But what this is saying is, we're weak in the sense that we can do no good that would merit God's favor. There's no behave, there's no good behavior I can have. There's no gift I can lift up to God that would that would have God smile on me and say, Jeff, I mean, you've done this perfectly. I need a rescue. I'm weak. I'm ungodly. I'm a sinner. I'm an enemy of God. I'm in the other camp because of my rebellion against God and he's opposed to me. And unless I have a rescue, someone to save me from the condition I'm in, God in his wrath at some point is going to take me out. That's really what he's talking about. Verse six and eight are echoing the same sentiment. Um, It's saying the same thing. It's, It's basically saying when we were when we were enemies of God, opposed to him in every way that we could oppose, be opposed to someone, opposed to his rule, opposed to his authority, opposed to his plan for his world, opposed to his plan for us. God, in his sovereignty, saw fit to incarnate the second person of the Trinity send him from eternity into heaven, have him live a perfect life in obedience to the law that he set for his humanity to live by. And by God's plan in just the right time, he would have him die on the cross in the hands of people like you and I. More than that, not only did he set the right time in his sovereignty for Christ to die, he would choose those people to whom this death would be beneficial for. That's what this is. This is saying. Verse eight is the the, the foundation of of this verse. This is a verse. Eight is a refrigerator verse. It's one of those verses you you like, you know, you put in a nice frame, put it on the wall. You might plaque it, you know, put it on your refrigerator. This is one of the first verses that I I remember memorizing when I was a a new Christian. Very simply, verse eight is clarifying that the death of Jesus was a demonstration of God's love for people like you and I, for those who believe in in Jesus. But I would tell you verse 8 we can't put verse 8 in perspective of how horrific Jesus death was unless we put it in the context of verse 7. And so this is what verse 7 is saying. It's saying every once in a while on a very rare occasion, very very rare, will some will someone die for someone who's good, okay? And so when I say die for someone who's good, I'm thinking like Billy Graham Mother Teresa type, like larger than life kind of people, those kind of people you die for. Right. He's saying, you know, Billy Graham, Mother Teresa. Yeah. I mean, they've done so much good for the world that there's somebody probably in the world that would die for them. He's saying, yeah, that's a good example of sacrificial love. But that in no way meets the level of God's love for us. God's love for us demonstrated through Jesus on the cross is at a whole nother level. That's what he's saying. But the death of Jesus puts God's love at a whole nother level. And then you have these neat two words. I don't know if you've ever recognized these words. Look, just look at verse eight and say out loud with me the first two words that you see there. But God, say it out loud. But God, have you ever noticed those words in Scripture? Um in your spare time this afternoon, go back and look in your Bible. And I don't if you have a it, it best if you have an electronic concordance, um, you know, type in, but God, and see what you come up with. But God is the perfect phrase which highlights the grace of God put against the darkness of humanity. The phrase, but God, every, every time you look at but God, look at everything that's before it to the left of it. And what you'll see is man and creation selectively rebelling against all that God has called us to be and all that he wants us to do. It's It's darkness. It's rebellion. It's evil. It's who we are. But the beauty of these two words is what you see on the right side. You see God unfolding his mercy, his grace. You see God initiating his love when we don't deserve it. You see God taking steps despite our sin to to reconcile us back to himself. And so in this case, it says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died a brutal, sacrificial, bloody death on the cross for people that were weak. For were people that were ungodly for people that were his enemies, sinners that hated God. That's the perspective that Paul is giving us and what God is doing here through Jesus on the cross. And it makes absolutely no sense. It makes no sense, folks. And this makes the cross tremendously important to us. On the cross, Paul tells us in verse eight, we see the greatest act of love ever demonstrated. It reflects the effects of the cross reverberate down through history, and permanently alter the lives of those who believe in Jesus. On the cross, Jesus didn't just display love. On the cross, Jesus performed a real, tangible, beneficial action on our behalf.
1: We We don't move. ¡Valquí! ¡Y su pindia hazme un wa ana Tehevun kum te hevon leere titulon titzolon mere da pe kum di hen se hevon ah vin Rayata Miss <laughs> Mathia have Alanata, and I shall like Miss Mithi by a Meva or by a diamond of and Y la están acullioma. I la Caltum the Hakti and Seltum with a deal coma hem haki, itah. He said he would deny the dena Cocabel deena of Afecom. What in the wound, the way and the earth cost him higher. Light day in a Rusbet Kadish, what Ibnelept And who? Meshiaha! Amar! min Salva! wa Spuckle, it's like a thing and it's like a lack of The lamb is fat, guess Hello back. I'm And this You
0: Jesus Christ on the cross There are many benefits Of Jesus' death on the cross for us. We get two here specifically from Paul in the remainder of this passage. In verse 9, Paul says that by the cross, Jesus justifies us by his blood from the wrath of God. Justification means that we have been declared in right relationship with God. We learn from Romans 3 and 4 that we can't do anything to earn our justification. We can't be good enough. We can't offer up a a gift to God from anything that's within us to make us right in his eyes. We simply have to believe. We have to trust. We have to have faith in the person and the work of Jesus. And God declares us right with God. The secondary point of this verse is how Jesus justifies us. And this is a significant point were justified by His blood. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And again, this points to the Old Testament picture of the atonement, the day of atonement in Leviticus 16. Under the Mosaic law, purification and cleansing from sin required sacrificial blood. God sent Jesus from eternity to, to earth to live life that he might be a perfect sacrifice for you and I. Jesus was a sacrifice. His blood that you saw in this video, poured out in his death on the cross, atoned for our sin, and that blood reconciles us to God. That's the first benefit. The second benefit is that we're reconciled. We are reconciled with God. Reconciliation stresses that we who once were enemies with God are now his friends so you can smile smile because that bloody death ends in a beautiful picture for you and I it's not what you've done it's what Jesus did and you're now a friend of God if you trust in the person and the work of Jesus Really, in in this verse, Paul is saying if the death of Jesus on the cross uh, reconciles his enemies back to God. Then because Jesus was resurrected from the dead, that can mean nothing but the assurance that he's going to save us and sanctify us and glorify us and free us from the final condemnation that will come when Jesus comes again to judge sin on the earth. In verse 11, let's read that. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I see two. I see three things here. The first is our reconciliation comes through Jesus. We can't make it happen. There's nothing in us that can make God love us that can that can put us on a friendly stance with God. It has to come through Jesus. The other thing is this word received. It, it, it's like you, you, all you can do is just hold your hands. I mean, you ever get a, you're a kid waiting for ice cream cone? You just hold your hands out and, and wait for it. OK, it says we receive this thing that Jesus does for us on the cross. Paul says the end result of our reconciliation should be rejoicing. That's the third point here. We get to boast in God and give him praise and glory for this great thing that he has done. Loving his enemies by sending his son to die on the cross. I'll conclude with this. You know, that's good news in Christianity. And that good news comes, comes with death. It comes with sacrifice. It comes with blood being spilled. The good news of Christianity is that Jesus' death on the cross accomplished salvation for us. Jesus propitiated us by his death. He diverted the wrath of God away from us because of our sin and put it on Jesus on the cross. God makes atonement for our sin. He reconciles man back to God. And so the only question that I would have for all of us here as we contemplate this idea of reconciliation is, I mean, has Jesus done that for you? Has he done that for you, you should ask yourself that. Jesus says he gave his life as a ransom for many. Are you among the many that he gave his life a ransom for? Jesus says that he he lays his down for his lazy lays his life down for his sheep. You saw that in the English um, subscript of the Aramaic that they were speaking in the video. His 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 sheep hear his voice. And so have you heard The call of Jesus beckoning you to repent of your sin and come and follow him. John's gospel says that whoever believes in the son of God has eternal life. Whoever rejects the son will not see life, but God's wrath remains on him. And so Jesus Christ has accomplished reconciliation for those who will simply trust in his person and his work on the cross. For those who repent and believe. And so what remains for us in this room is to, to trust Jesus, to have faith in Jesus for the salvation of our souls, because we have nothing to offer up to God. And I will, I will say this very bluntly. God will have no pity on those who who aren't reconciled to him outside of the death of his son on the cross. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the beauty of the cross, that death would come to bring us life, that sacrifice would free us to live, that blood would purify us, that your mercy and your love would be so great that even when there's hate in our heart for you and your authority and your commands, that you would incline yourself toward us, that you would extend your grace, that you would lower to us the scepter of mercy, and that you would do the unthinkable, that you would die for your enemies. What great love you have for us. And that love comes through Jesus. So Lord, we exalt Jesus. We praise Jesus. We lift our eyes to Jesus. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he was humble enough to submit himself to your plan. We thank you that Jesus died for us. We thank you for your great reconciliation. Thank you, Jesus.